Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. It is great to see everyone again. I'm sorry we had a uh, somewhat of a long break in the Parsha class um, due to a number of factors, including Yontif. So, but it's good to be back and for the foreseeable future, every Tuesday morning at 9.30 to be able to get together to study the Parsha. So we pick up with Parsha's Lech Lecha. And uh, as always, we'll uh, provide an overview of the Parsha and then delve into specific Psukim. And you'll see the Psukim we're going to delve into today are very timely, because you wouldn't necessarily think in Sefer Bracious, in Parshas Lechelcha, you would see a powerful message about the eternal, undivided capital of the Jewish people, about our attachment to Yerushalayim, which is unfortunately very timely as it's being contested, not only by our enemies in the Middle East, but by our adversaries at the New York Times, who recently wrote an outrageous, scandalous article claiming that Historians equally debate whether there's ever been a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. They later uh, apologized. They didn't mean the debate is if, they meant exactly where on the Temple Mount the Temple stood. It's an outrageous, outrageous uh, article. So unfortunately, it's very timely. So first we'll do the overview of the Parsha, then we'll go back and we'll see the Pesukim themselves. So our Parsha begins with the introduction to Avram Avinu. It's a fascinating introduction because so much of Avram's life is omitted. We actually pick up in the middle of Avram's life, we pick up when Avram is already at a mature, advanced age, after where the Iker Chaser Menasefer, the story of Avram's discovery of the Almighty, is missing. Is missing. And I'll ask you something even more compelling, which we won't discuss this morning, but I'd like to throw out a few questions for you to think about over the course of the week in Shabbos. We discussed it a few years ago. Avram is not the first to discover God. We like to talk about Avram as the father of monotheism, the father of ethical monotheism. But he's not. We have the Torah already until this point. It's filled with individuals. One of whom we'll talk about later. Shem, the son of Noah, who opens the yeshiva, who precedes Avram. So if Avram is not the father of monotheism, why is he identified with discovering, with initiating, with promoting monotheism? If there were those who lived before him, Adam and Noah and Shem and others, then why is Avram the one who is identified as the father of monotheism. If you take a look at the Rambam in the beginning of Hilchos Avodah Zarah, you'll see the Rambam deviates from his normal practice of recording strict Jewish law, and he tells us the narrative, he tells us the history. And if the Rambam includes the history, the Rambam is not seeking to be a historian. If he includes the history, it's for one reason and one reason only. He thinks understanding the history is part of law. He thinks it's a necessary prerequisite to be able to understand the law, to see in history and in the context. And uh, I don't want to leave you hanging. So the short answer is everybody else found God but kept it to themselves. Avram is the father of monotheism because not only did he discover and find God, he then devoted the rest of his life to promoting that message. His entire being was to create Kiddush Hashem. The essence of his existence was to draw others closer to his discovery. He understood it not just as a tangent, not just as an aside, not just as a fascinating fact that there is a God, that there is one singular Almighty, but Avram saw it as the entire purpose of life is to serve that God and to bring others closer, and that's why. So we begin with the, uh, with the story of, of Avram. We've pointed out in the past that if you look at the end of Parshas Noach, you'll see that though we say Avram was the first to be sent, you'll see that Terach, the end of last week's Parsha, already took Avram and Lot. And Sarai. They already headed to Canaan. So again, why is Avram rewarded? Why is Avram celebrated as having completed the journey? This is either the first or the second of the ten tests that Avram endures. 
His father did it. Terach took Avram and Lot and Sarai and left to work Kazdim and went to Eretz Canaan. So why is Avram applauded? Again, we've shared in the past, the difference is Avram arrives there. What happens to Terach? Terach gets to this metropolis, the big city, the lights, the flesh, the culture, and he is enamored. He's enamored by the city of Haran, the decadence, the pleasure, and he doesn't move on. He begins the journey, but we don't credit the one who begins the journey. We recognize and celebrate the one who completes it, the one who makes it to the destination. True, Terach also left Ur Kazdim and headed to Canaan, but he got sidetracked. He got distracted and he never made it past Haran. Avram made it all the way, and that's why he is Avram Avinu. He is our he is our forefather. So again, there's a lot to understand. In the beginning of the parsha, why the Torah kind of begins abruptly. We don't have the story of the Kivshana Ish. We don't have the story of breaking his father's idols. We don't have the story of at what age and how he discovered God. All of that is omitted from the text. It's filled in, of course, in rabbinic literature, and it is, I think, uh, most succinctly captured, as I said, by the Rambam. But uh, but it's all missing. And why is it missing? Why would the Torah not deem those facts, what age and how Avram discovered God, how he broke his father's idols, how he was thrown into the Kivshana Eish? We usually assume the Mishnah in Pirkei tells us Avram endured ten tests. And this is a model that every one of us will endure tests in our lifetime. And tests are not there to punish us. Tests are not there to make us suffer. Tests are there to discover things about ourselves that we would otherwise never know. It's only when we're tested that we realize our potential. So the Mepharshim have a field day with trying to figure out which are the ten tests. Go through the text and try to identify if Avram, the Mishnah tells us Avram had ten tests, where were they? What were they? Most assume that Avram's experience of being thrown into the Kivshan Ha'esh, the fiery furnace, was test number one. But the Rambam doesn't agree. The Rambam says, Lech Lecha, being challenged to leave his homeland, being challenged to leave everything that was familiar, to be Avram Ivri, to be on the other side of everyone else, that was the first test. And why does the Rambam not count being thrown into the fiery furnace? Having the faith, having the faith to confront and to remain loyal to God, and as a result, the consequence be thrown in the fiery furnace. Why does the Rambam not see that as the first test? You have on the other end also, which was the tenth test. Most assume the Akedah was the tenth test. Rabbeinu Yonah says no. When Avram purchased Maras and Machpelah, Chevron, another contested city, unfortunately, where there was a stabbing just again today, Maras and Machpelah, which is ours, Avram purchased it. Rabbeinu Yonah says that was the 10th test, not the Akedah. Well, why doesn't everyone agree? What was the test of purchasing Maras and Machpelah? It was a transaction. Jews do business. Where, where was the big test that it's worthy of being called one of the Nisyonos? So again, it's a fascinating study to see where are the 10 tests, and why do the different rabbis come out the way they do in the count and figure out why did some include this and others omit that, what qualifies as a test, and, and so on. Kodesh Baruch Hu calls Avram and makes him a promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. And uh, then he says something that our evangelical friends believe even more than most Jews. And that is that those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. I can't tell you how many times I've interacted with evangelicals who support Israel and let's leave aside the debate of what their intent is or not and whether we should accept their support or not. I think we don't have many friends in the world. I don't see us as having many options but to accept their incredible support. I'm not sure we, where we would be without it. But they believe wholeheartedly. They actually will create PowerPoints and show throughout history that those who supported the Jews were blessed and those who did not 
were cursed. And this is the part of the original promise of God to Avram. Avram takes his wife and his nephew and all of their property and they head out. All the nefesh asher b'charon. What are the nefesh asher The souls they made in Haran. Rashi tells us, inspire yourself to inspire others. This was the outreach movement. Avram is the father of outreach. Ha-nefesh asher they stood on pedestals, they stood on soapboxes in the corners of parks, and they didn't just keep to themselves they had discovered this concept of monotheism. They proclaimed it, they pronounced it, they promoted it, and they recruited people to it, and they had chasidim, they had followers. Was Avram successful, by the way, in this, in this experiment? Look at the world today, thousands of years later. Avram is born into a world of paganism, of idolatry. Avram's been in a, born into a world where people give credit to rocks and stones, to the sun and the moon and the stars. They're bowing down to inanimate objects. And Avram comes into a world and says, one second, that's not what the world is about. I can't see God, feel God, taste God, smell God. There is a being who existed before any of us and will outlast any of us who is, has providence over all of us and his world is not about our pleasure. This world is about giving. It's about his values. And he was set out to teach that to the world. Was he successful? It's a simple question. Was Avram successful? 2015, 5776. Looking back, what? In his eyes or in our eyes? In our eyes. <coughs> to a large part, absolutely successful. There are billions. Muslims, is for sure... I shouldn't say for sure. There's a debate about Christianity and Islam, whether it's considered monotheism. But it's certainly, even the Rambam, who sees Christianity not as monotheism, acknowledges it as a step in the right direction. The Rambam, in the uncensored edition, praises the, the progress that Christianity and Islam provides in terms of not worshipping idols per se, and at least being based on a monotheistic system. You have billions, billions of Christians and Muslims and a f- sprinkling of a handful of Jews and uh, it's half the world's population is, is uh, monotheistic. Avram introduced all of that. Without Avram standing on his soapbox, we might still be bowing down titles as we say at the, at the Seder. So Avram's experiment or Avram's initiative has been largely successful. Avram and Sarah go to Egypt because there is a famine. We all remember the famous story. Avram tells her, you're my sister for the purposes of this trip. And uh, Sarah is taken... And then Hashem afflicts Paro with, uh, with a plague because of Sarai. Paro is frustrated at Avram. Why didn't you just tell me she's your sister? I would have commanded everybody hands off. And then they return to Egypt. This trip of Avram down to Egypt becomes a precedent. Not just for the fact that there are famines in the land that skip over Yitzchak, but then Yaakov sends his sons down and we ultimately descend to Egypt. But there is an eternal struggle between the philosophy of Egypt and the philosophy of Israel. We discussed it in the Pasha class either last year or two years ago. You could listen online. But Egypt and the Nile represent one worldview. Israel and reliance on Hashem represent a different worldview. And part of the cultivation and the refinement of our forefathers was the experience of being saturated, embedded in Egypt and the experience of leaving Egypt, ascending back to Israel, choosing the Almighty. Avram does it. Yaakov through his sons does it. We as a people then are forged as a nation in Egypt 
and from there ascend and emerge. So it's not just a geographical coincidence that when there's a famine, we happen to head to Egypt, they have the Nile, we only rely on rain in Israel, there's much more to it, and that is uh, already established in our Parsha through the experience, the journey of Avram. They return to Eretz Yisrael, Avram and Lot, by the way, this is a continuation of this debate, because when Avram and Lot, when they say, this place isn't big enough for the two of us, where does, Av- where does Lot look towards? He looks towards Sodom, but if you look at the direction that he chooses, Lot is choosing the philosophy of Egypt. It's a philosophy of the Jordan, of irrigation, of no need to rely or depend on the Almighty because you have your own sprinkler system. Lot chooses a philosophy as of abandoning God. It's much more convenient to be able to say, I'm independent. He lifts his eyes and he sees, Kikar HaYardain. Enough of this praying to God for the rain and not knowing when you go to sleep whether your field will be irrigated the next day. Will it rain? Will we harvest? Will we have food to eat? I like Egypt. Egypt, they have everything they need. They don't have to rely on God. So again, this struggle between the philosophy of Egypt, the philosophy of Israel, when Avram goes down and comes back, and then again when Avram and Lot split, Lot chooses Sodom, but really he's choosing Sodom as an extension of the philosophy of Mitzrayim, while Avram, of course, is uh, symptomatic of the philosophy of, of Israel. A repetition of the promise that Avram's children are going to be like the uh, sand, like the dust of the earth. Go walk the land, it will be yours. It is our land, even if there are those who dispute it. Then we have the great war. Sodom um, has four other nations it recruits to fight with him. Five kings versus the four kings. And Avram comes in. Lot is captured. They hold Lot ransom because they know that Avram has great wealth. Avram doesn't only have esteem and prestige. Avram has amassed great wealth. So you're going to hold someone hostage who is related to someone with great wealth. You're not going to hold someone hostage who's related to people on food stamps. It's not going to get you very far. So they take Lot hostage with the hope that um, it's going to... uh, going to get Avram to, uh, to ransom him. Avram intercedes, rescues his nephew Lot, and by extension rescue, rescues Sodom and the five kings against the four kings. Then the, the king of Sodom comes out of the bunker where he was forced to be hiding. king of Sodom had great arrogance. Medrash tells us that the king of Sodom tells Avram, uh, look, we have a lot in common. You survived the king of Kivshan Ha'esh, the fiery furnace. I had to hide in the bunker. We've both been tested and we're people of, we have a lot in common which is an incredibly arrogant statement because it can't compare the test of Avram to what he had to endure. And then we have this exchange, and this is what we're going to study in a moment, in depth, these psukim, where the king of Sodom is about to engage Avram in a dialogue, but they're interrupted. They're interrupted. And we'll study in a moment by whom and about what. Anyway, the king of Sodom then offers Avram great wealth in uh, payment for his stepping up and helping. Avram says, no way. Never do I want you taking credit for my wealth or my destiny. I'm good. I won't touch it. Karish Baruch the Rebbeinu Shalom reassures Avram. We have the Brisbane Absarim, the great covenant of the commitment of God to Avram, Avram to God, the promise that we are going to go down to Egypt. You see the theme of Egypt in this parsha. Avram and Sarah go down there. Lot is attracted there. The promise that we are going to go down there. Uh, the the exile and the redemption that will come from it. And then we have the story of. Hagar and Yishmael. The covenant is repeated. New names and a new destiny. Brismila. Avram at an advanced stage gives himself a brismila. The promise to 
Sarai, she goes from Sarai to Sarah, the promise that she will have children, and that is the end of our parsha. Okay, so here's the part I want to study with you in depth today. Perak Yedalad, Pasuk Yedzayin, chapter 14, verse 17, in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash, page 6465. Perak Yedalad, Pasuk Yedzayin. Where are we picking up? We're picking up exactly where Avraham has saved Sodom. He's emerged victorious in the war between the four and the five kings. The Torah tells us that the king of Sodom, who had hidden his bunker, has now surfaced, and he goes to greet Avraham. What happens? The king of Sodom goes to greet Avram when he returns from his victory in the war against Kedar Omer and the kings with him. And where do they meet? In a place called Emek Shaveh, which is also known as Emek Hamelach. So the king of Sodom goes out to greet Avram. It sounds like they're about to have a conversation. Yashakayach! Thank you, Avram! We were on our last legs. We had no hope. We had no way out. And you come and you rescued us. How can we possibly... But it seems they're about to engage a conversation. And instead, what happens? Interrupted. This other personality, this other character comes. What's his name? Malki Tzedek. Who is Malki Tzedek? He is the king of Shalem. And he interrupts the encounter between the king of Sodom and Avram to bring bread and wine. And he is a priest to the Almighty God. And he blesses Avram and he says, Blessed is Avram to the God the, the exalted God who is the owner, who has dominion over the heavens and the earth. And he concludes, and blessed is God on the Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and It's interesting he uses the pronoun. I look to see whether anyone suggests that it's Malki Tzedek who gives Avram, but it's not. Avram reacts to receiving this blessing by tithing, by taking a portion of his spoils, a portion of his wealth, and giving it to this priest. He's a religious man. He's a man of spirituality. And Avram responds and reacts to the blessing he's received by giving Miser. And now we go back to the conversation that looked like it was about to happen. The king of Sodom says to Avram, You saved my people? I'll take the lives, you take the spoils. And Avram says, I lift up my hand to God the Most High, the Maker, the Owner of Heaven and Earth, as if taking an oath. Avram takes an oath and responds and says, I won't take so much as a thread or a shoe strap. I won't take anything I don't want you. Let nobody say they made me rich. I'm a self-made man. Only I'm not self-made. God made me rich. But no person, and certainly not the king of Sodom, with all that Sodom represents, 
will be able to claim they're the one who made me wealthy. <coughs> Far from me. Only what the young men have eaten and those who accompanied me, they will take their portion. And that's the end of the story. And again, to me, you read the section and it begs the question, who is Malki Tzedek? Why does he inject himself? Why, does, why didn't the Torah tell us the war was over? Malki Tzedek gave him a blessing. And then the king of Stone came out and they had this exchange. Why does it describe the king of Stone engages Avraham? It's abruptly interrupted by Malki Tzedek giving him a bracha. Avraham gives him miser. And then finally we have the dialogue with the king of Stone. Why is it written in this way? Why is it written in this order? This is what I want to study together, together with you. In order to understand this section, you have to know who Malki Tzedek is. Who is this Malki Tzedek? So first of all, let's just see a few things. Malki Tzedek, the king of Shalem, goes out to give him bread and wine. Why is he bringing him bread and wine? Why is Malki Tzedek approaching Avram and bringing him bread and wine? Because he was fine because of the war. So oh, he is just returning from war. So the Sforno writes, To those returning from war who are exhausted. In battle, you don't have time to sleep or to eat. The king of Sodom doesn't, but Malkit Sedek does. Maybe that's a hint to why it inserts itself. The king of Sodom is about to encounter and talk to Avraham, but he's not offering anything, provisions. The Malkit Sedek does. He sees that they're exhausted, they're tired, and the proper reaction is to offer, <coughs> excuse me, is to offer provisions. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik, in the great Rabbi Soloveitchik Chumash that was published by the OU, Rabbi Soloveitchik writes the following. In antiquity, a famished, victorious army on a march back from the battlefront, intoxicated with victory, saw nothing as sacred. Robbery, rape, murder, licentiousness, gluttony, all these acts were permissible. But Avram's army was different. Coming back after weeks of fighting, the soldiers were famished and starved. On the way, there were many settlements, cities and villages from which they could have gotten food if they wanted. But no one touched anything. Makitzedek came out with bread and wine to feed the warriors. He understood what Avram had accomplished and he came out to greet him. Rashi says this was the way the decent people would greet warriors who were famished with battle. So according to the Rav, why is Makitzedek rewarding with the Lechem V'yayin. Look at Rashi. Lechem V'yayin. Kach osim li'igiyei mochama ve'heru lo she'ein belibu alav asheharagiz banav medrash ha'gadah remez lo al menachaz v'anasachim. Rashi says that he is, this is the proper way you give provisions to those returning from war. Malki Tzedek shows that there's no hard feelings even though it's his descent and his offspring who were killed in battle. We'll see in a moment what that means. But says the Rav, Avram and his army could have pillaged a village. They were starving. They didn't. Avram is not just the father of monotheism, he's the father of ethical monotheism. He's introducing to an unethical war the concept of morality. And it's immoral to pillage a city on your way back from war because you happen to be hungry. Malki Tzedek, who is a Kohen Lekel Yon, Malki Tzedek, who is a religious personality, understands this distinction, sees how Avram is distinguishing himself by doing that, and that's why he comes out and rewards him with these, with these provisions. Who is Malki Tzedek? Who is Malki Tzedek? And where is Shalem? 
So look at the, the Ibn Ezra. Says Rav Avram Ibn Ezra. Malki Tzedek, Nikra Kain Bavushu Melech, Malach Amakam Tzedek. He's called Malki Tzedek, which means the king of the righteous city. And what is the righteous city? Shalem. What is Shalem? Says the Ibn Ezra, Shalem Hu Yerushalayim. He quotes a Pasuk from Tehillim. Malki Tzedek was not his name. Any more than president is someone's name, or paro is someone's name, or prime minister is someone's name. Different countries and different cultures have different titles for the head of state. Prime minister, president, paro. The king of the city of Yerushalayim throughout antiquity was known as Malki Tzedek. That's not his name. We'll see his name in a moment. That's a title. Throughout the generations, Malki Tzedek is the king of Yerushalayim. What is Malki Tzedek? The king of Tzedek. There's only one city that has ever been identified as the city of Tzedek. The city of righteousness. The city of justice. The city of virtue. And what city is that? Yerushalayim. The Navi Yeshaya refers to Yerushalayim as Ir HaTzedek. Yirmiyahu calls Yerushalayim Nevei HaTzedek. And David HaMelech and Tehillim calls it Sha'arei Tzedek, like the hospital. Tzedek, righteousness, justice, is part of the very definition, the fabric of this, our holiest city. The Ramban points out, look at the Ramban. Umalki Tzedek Melech Shalem, he, Yerushalayim. <coughs> and he quotes a passage from, Yeshay, from Yeshua as well. Already in antiquity, already in the time of Avram Avinu, thousands of years ago, the non-Jewish nations of a war, before there was a Jewish nation, before there was a Jewish people, before there was an Avram, that place already distinguished itself as being imbued with a holiness. Writes the Ramban. The nations of the world already understood this is the choicest of all places in the middle of civilization. Or because they understood that Yerushalayim, the capital of the Jewish people, the place from which the entire world was created. We know the world was created from Harabais, from the from the rock. They understood that this city below corresponds with the heavenly city above. Shesham shechinasa shel Kadosh Baruch Hu Tzedek. Writes the Ramban. So we see that in Yeshayahu and Yermiyahu and beyond and in Tehillim, it's always referred to as Tzedek. Here in Aparsha, it's called the city of righteousness, the city of justice. And it was already seen as a holy city, a source of spirituality, even before there was a Jewish people. The Radak, Rav David Kimchi adds, the Yerushalayim is known, this is what he writes, it's known as the city of justice and peace, and it will not tolerate, what did we see in last week's Parsha? Why was the world destroyed? What were they engaging in? Someone just said it? Hamas. The Radak writes, Yerushalayim cannot tolerate Hamas. 
Yerushalayim is the city of righteousness and justice and truth and integrity and honesty and holiness and it cannot tolerate Hamas. Hamas means robbery or thievery. It means to steal. It's what the people were doing in last week's parsha. It was the Makkeh B'Patash. It was the final straw. God destroyed the world because people had no respect for pri- property or ownership or rights. Um, people were stealing. They were stealing. But Hamas really means corruption. We view it, it's not coincidence, the, one of the co-founders of Hamas was just arrested by Israel, not because he was seeking justice in the holy capital of Jerusalem, but because he was seeking anarchy, chaos, murder, terrorism, and inciting towards, towards violence. So it's fascinating that the Radak in the Middle Ages, Rav David Kimchi, already writes that Yerushalayim, the Ir Tzedek, the city of righteousness and justice, has zero tolerance for, cannot tolerate Hamas. So... <coughs> Yerakodesh, the holy city. Yeah, that's the that's the name that we place afterwards. Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, but it's not part of the name proper. It's a, it's it's the description of the city. It's the holy city. It's a description of the city, but the proper name of the city is Yerushalayim. In fact, in our text, it's Shalem. There's a whole story we don't have time for, but how it got its name also is it Yeru. Is it Shalem? Is it the city of Yira, the city of Shalem? And the decision was made to combine the two to be Yerushalayim, the history of the, the origin of, of the name. But here it is called Shalem, which means whole, complete, means peace. And it's the city of Tzedek of righteousness. So it is known as the city of righteousness, the city of peace, which the Radak says has no tolerance for Hamas. So the king of this distinguished and prominent city, who has the generic title, Malki Tzedek, the king of Tzedek, but who is he? Who is he? So the Talmud tells us it's none other than Shem, the son of Noah. Shem, the son of Noah. He was a Kohen who served Hashem. Like his father, he was an Ish Tzaddik. And we know that ultimately, when Yaakov leaves his father's house, when he is fleeing from his brother Esav, and he spends 14 years, where does Yaakov go? Where does he find asylum? He goes to the yeshiva of shame veaver. Shame. This is that shame. He had a yeshiva. Yeshiva of shame. He is the Malki Tzedek, the king of Tzedek, the king of Yerushalayim. So now we know a little bit more about who he is. Let's look at some of the Mephoshim here. We saw the Ibn Ezra who tells us Malki Tzedek is the generic name of the city of Tzedek. Shalem is Yerushalayim. And the, uh, the Ramban also saw so, so from Yehoshua as well. This is Yerushalayim. And um, they knew it was a holy city even from, from so long ago. The Rashbam writes, The Rashbam is bothered by the same question we were. Why are we interrupting over here? We began with, the king of Sodom went to greet Avram. And ostensibly, they're about to have a conversation. But then we interrupt. And before we're told what the conversation is, Maki Tzedek inserts himself. So one possible explanation we've already shared is, while the king of Sodom does not provide provisions, Maki Tzedek does. He sees the soldiers as being exhausted. He rewards their ethics and morality, that they did not pillage an area, but they're an ethical army, the army of Avram. And so Maki Tzedek comes out. That was the first explanation. But the Rashbam is bothered by the same question. 
Why are we interrupting between Vayetze Melech Sodom and Vayomer Melech Sodom? The king of Sodom going out and the king of Sodom having a conversation. And he answers, Why the interruption? In order to teach us, says the Rashbam. She'emes heishiv Avram l'melech Sodom. Kishamar lo biladai. When Avram tells the king of Sodom, I don't want any of your things. I'm good to go. He was telling him the truth. How do we know that? Because he was already satiated through the provisions provided by Malki Tzedek. So Rashbam says, really the king of Sodom was about to talk to him. We only throw this in to, so that, to show that Avram later was telling the truth when he says, I'm good to go. I don't need anything. I've been provided for. The Orachayim HaKadosh of Chaim Ben-Atar is bothered by our same question. Why introduce the king of Sodom encounter with Avram and then interrupt before telling us their dialogue? Says the Orachayim. Rabbi Seinu Amru V'tam she'efsik b'inyon melech shalem ben yitzias melech Sodom lehodaz dvarav el Avram lagid shevach ha-tzadikim ma beinam lebein rishoyim ki melech Sodom yatzalikras Avram liros panav rekam hagam she'elav yechuyav lagbil pane Avram b'mincha kiyad ha-melech the king of stone went out empty-handed. He should have been the super grateful one. Malki Tzedek didn't know Avram anything. And yet, he's gracious in providing Avram and his soldiers. Melch Sodom is rescued from Avram. He owes Avram his entire existence, his salvation. And yet he has the chutzpah to emerge empty-handed. So it's in order to create a contrast, says the Orachayim, we introduce the king of Sodom encountering Avram, then we interject Malki Tzedek, and then we go back to the dialogue in order to create this contrast between the Russia. The wicked person is ungrateful. The wicked person is kafoy tov, is an ingrate. Versus Malki Tzedek, who didn't know Avram anything, and nevertheless was incredibly generous, was incredibly generous with him. He brings him lechem v'yayim. Malki Tzedek brings bread and water. I saw something interesting just as an aside. Wine. 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 Thank you. I need water. That's why I'm... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wine would be even better, yeah. I got a big day ahead. So, um, he brought him bread and wine. So, in the Sefer Maaseh Hashem, it says, bread is a reference to Nigla, to the revealed Torah. Yayin is a reference to Kabbalah. The hidden Torah. And that's what he brings. And Malki Tzedek brings Avram access to the world of spirituality. It's not just provisions, but Lechem V'yayin. Lechem is the revealed Torah. Yayin is Sod. Nechmas Yayin, Yatsa Sod. When you drink wine, secrets come out. But Sod is another word we use to describe Kabbalah, mystical teachings, <laughs> the hidden Torah. The Rakanti, one of the Rishonim, last week's Parsha says that when Noah comes out of the Teva, and he plants a vineyard and he drinks wine, what Noah was trying to do was not just get intoxicated to escape the reality of what just had happened, but says the Rakanti, he plants a vineyard, he drinks wine, wine is always an allusion to entering the Pardes. Noah tried to go into the Pardes, he tried to go into the vineyard of mystical teachings. And Noah, lo yatsa b'shalom, he did not leave in peace. You know, we have the famous story in Chagiga, the four great rabbis who entered the, the world of mysticism and uh, only one of them walked out the way that he had walked in. The mysticism, one has to be on a level, one has to be ready, one has to have an authentic access. So even the great Noah 
planted this vineyard, the purpose of the vineyard was not to intoxicate himself physically, he tried to get into the world of mysticism, but as we know, Noach, Noach, it did not, it was not successful. The Rambam says, in Ilchos Yisraeli Torah, you should only enter the vineyard when you first filled your belly with bread. What does the Rambam mean? Bread is Torah Sanigla. Bread is the revealed Torah. And then the bread is there to absorb the wine. The bread is there as the foundation for the wine. First you have to fill your belly with bread and then you can enter the vineyard and then you can drink the wine of the mystical Torah of the hidden Torah. So this uh, Sefer Masa Hashem, it's quoted by uh, Rav Yankel Galinsky in his Vigarita, suggests that when Malki Tzedek, Malki Tzedek is Shem Ben Noach, Malki Tzedek is the religious personality of the day. Avram's own progeny is destined to study in Shem's yeshiva. So Shem encounters Avram, it's not literally bread and wine he's giving him, which, in fact, I don't know, if you're on your way back from a war, and you're really thirsty, wine doesn't quench your thirst. You'd much more appreciate water than wine. But this, according to this tradition, what Malki Tzedek gave him was access to religious teachings, to spirituality. He gave him lechem first, and then yayin. First you have to have a foundation of bread, of Torah Sa'nigla, of the revealed Torah, of halacha, of Jewish law, and only upon that can you build sod, only upon that can you build Kabbalah. This is one of the terrible tragedies of our generation in which people are promoting Kabbalah, Kabbalah Center, mysticism, as if anybody, people who don't know the ABCs of Judaism, people who can't read Hebrew, people who don't know the basics or are not observing the basics of Jewish law, are skipping, jumping over the foundation. They're, they're drinking wine on an empty stomach. You know what happens if you drink wine on an empty stomach? You get sick. You get terribly, terribly sick. So people who are drinking wine, and let's assume it's even wine, it's actually counterfeit wine, it's more like vinegar, but people who are drinking this fake wine, this vinegar on an empty stomach, are getting sick. Kabbalah is beautiful. We have a system of Kabbalah. But Kabbalah is meant to be after, as the Rambam writes, after one's stomach, after one's belly is filled with bread. So that's a mystical approach to what's going on here between Malki Tzedek and Avram. Yes, Yecheved. Right. So the question is, what were they learning? You didn't have a Torah yet, so what are they learning? They weren't learning about the whole story, how we wandered through the desert 40 years complaining miserably. What were they learning? What does it mean when it says that Avram observed the entire Torah? Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They observed the totality of Jewish law, even Erev Tchumen. They observed obscure laws, Erev Tavshilin, different uh, girsos in the Medrash, that, uh, in the Gemara. That Avram uh, and the Avos observed Torah. What did they observe? For example, how did they observe Pesach? We'll see soon that Avram is healing from his wound next week and he welcomes the visitors and uh, Rashi tells us it's Pesach, what he serves them. What do you mean Pesach? They hadn't yet gone to Egypt and, and left Egypt. There's no story of Pesach. It didn't happen yet. How are they observing Pesach? I've always understood it. This is just the way I've understood it. That what it means that they study Torah and what it means that they observed these holidays is the following. Pesach is a historical event that revealed to us that on the 15th of Nisan, for one week, 
The world is imbued with the energy of the concept of freedom and liberty and emancipation. We needed the historical event to reveal to us the theme and the essence in that time. But Avram, who was so spiritually finely attuned, didn't need the historical event to know what the theme of the time was. He was able to appreciate the motif of the time, the energy, he was able to grow from the experience without needing the historical event. We were on a lower level, so Hanukkah reveals to us that for those eight days it's about the supernatural. And Pesach reveals for those days it's about freedom and liberty. And Sukkot represents for those days it's about exposing ourselves to the elements and trusting in God. The historical events tell us what those times are all about. But the others were so spiritually attuned that they didn't need the history to indicate what the time was about. They intuited it. They knew it already. And what were they studying? They were studying the themes, the ideas, the values, the ideals of Judaism. In Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever, were they going through Shas? Were they clawing a Hakira in the, what's the halacha exactly in, uh, in a Nazir, in Tummah, with the Giluach of Metzorah? Those do not, what, is that what they were learning? No, they weren't learning that. Of course not. But they were learning the concept of a Nazir, even if you didn't have the halachas of a Nazir. You had the concept of, should you live an ascetic life? Should you appreciate the physical world? That's the way I understood it. To me, it's all consistent with the idea, what we're taught, Chazal teaches histako bo'araisa ubore alma. That God looked into His Torah, and then He created the world. What does that mean? He wrote the Torah before the world? Art scroll, the hurts, which chumash did he have? He wrote the Torah and then he created the world based on the Torah? I've always understood it in my own very humble, limited way. I've always understood that to mean that God had values he wanted to bring to the world. So he created a world corresponding with those values. He wanted us to be disciplined. So he created a world of temptation, of food and physical pleasure. He wanted us to whatever. So he created a world that had time. What it means, means he looked into his value system and he created a world that would enable us to learn and to grow and to live that value system. So not necessarily the detailed laws, chapter and verse, but the meta-values and ideals of it, I'd like to think is what was being studied, is what was being observed, is what God looked at before he created the world, and that is, that's what's going on here. But again, this, uh, <coughs> this tradition teaches that Lechem represents Torah Sanigla, Halacha. Yayin represents Torah Sanistar. Sod represents Kabbalah. And that's what Malkit Tzedek was, he was uh, transmitting here in this section to, uh, to Avram. Okay, let's keep going. We didn't answer our, our question. We saw, I should take that back, we saw a few answers to our question. Why did Malkit Tzedek interject? Yes. Um, in that vein, the forefathers also kept Kashra. They kept everything according right. to Torah. So therefore, Melech Stone couldn't bring him fruit. Oh, okay. Well, maybe he could bring him fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Bread with basic ingredients. But you're right. If we want to be down the Kafschus, the king of Sodom, if Avram was already observing Kashrus, so he wouldn't have eaten in the king of Sodom's house anyway. But uh, Bamaki Tzedek, I guess, as the uh, Kohen, Akel Elyon, he would. So we asked, the, the text introduces the, conver- introduces the encounter of 
the king of Stom and Avram, interjects Malkitzedek and only after tells us the conversation why. We saw maybe according to the um, Rashbam, it's so that you could see Avram was telling the truth after when he tells the king of Stom, I'm already full, we're taken care of. We saw the Orachayim said, it's to contrast the way of a Russia and a Tzaddik. The Russia, the king of Stom, who should have been exceedingly grateful, is utterly ungrateful. Malkitzedek who owed Avram nothing, is incredibly generous and and kind. But I would like to suggest to you a, a third answer. Perhaps the Torah interrupts the encounter between Avram and the king of Stom because Malkit Tzedek's shame had something to interject. You see, Avram in this encounter, by talking to the king of Stom, he's about to interact with the philosophy of Stom. Sodom is the capital of paganism, corruption, selfishness, decadence, immorality, depravity. It's a degenerate society. And it is by definition the place that is defined by divisiveness. Sodom is not one city of many people. Sodom is many people who happen to be living in the same city. What do I mean? The Mishnah and Navos tells us that those who lead a life of Shali Shali and Shalcha Shalcha, those who live a life of what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, is the Midah of Sodom. Why is it the Midah of Sodom? To be so independent, so separated, so divided, mimics the attitude of Sodom. To be unwilling to share, to be unwilling to collaborate, to be unwilling to partner, is the essence of Sodom. Sodom is defined by divisiveness. It is the antithesis of Chesed and Tzedek. You know what the bumper sticker of Sodom is? Billboards all over Sodom say, every man for himself. That's the bumper sticker. It was a capital crime in Sodom to do an act of chesed. Right? We encounter that not now, but later in the Torah. When Lot is gracious to the angels and they come, and Lot says, take my daughters instead, but instead of taking his guests, but they come and they want to kill Lot because he's practicing hospitality. It's a capital crime to be generous because a city that is defined by divisiveness, by separateness, where every man for himself, it is the antithesis of the values of where? Yerushalayim. If Yerushalayim is the Ir Tzedek, if it is the city of righteousness and kindness and justice, Sodom is the city of selfishness, of ingratitude, of divisiveness of every man for himself. So perhaps, I would suggest to you, shame understood that Avram was about to engage the leader of the capital of corruption. So he interjects, as if to say, Avram, before you engage the king of Sodom and expose yourself or are vulnerable to that philosophy, let me introduce myself. Meet me. Understand not the way of Sodom, understand the way of the city of Tzedek, the city Shalem of Yerushalayim. So Maki Tzedek injects to show graciousness and gratitude by offering bread and wine. He blesses Hashem and acknowledges divine intervention, the success of the war. war. He gives a bracha to Avram. And what does Avram do immediately? What does Avram do? How does he react to the bracha? Vayitein lo maser mikol. He gives Malkitzedek a donation. Oh, you're the king of this righteous city. You are teaching God's principles and values. I'd like to make a donation. By Avram doing that, what does Avram show immediately? That he gets it. 
He's about to encounter the king of Sodom about divisiveness and selfishness and decadence and corruption. Malkitzedek interjects and says, Whoa, brother, let me tell you there's another way. I come from a city about selflessness. I come from a city of unity and righteousness and charity. Let me give you a blessing. And Avram says, By giving that miser, I choose your city. I choose your way of life. I choose that philosophy. And now and only now is he ready for a conversation with the king of Sodom. Avram distances himself. When Sodom says, let me give you wealth, he's not doing it to be generous because we know it's prohibited to be generous. Why is he doing it? It's in his own self-interest. There is no generosity in Sodom. If the king of Sodom is offering anything to Avram, it's manipulation. It's, it's manipulative. He's doing it for himself and Avram understands that and sees that and distances himself from it. Indeed, we learn in next week's parsha that with the fall of Sodom comes the rise of Yerushalayim. Ironically, Avram davens for Sodom, the very city that he's rejecting its philosophy and way of life. In next week's parsha, Avram davens for them. Why? Because he's from Yerushalayim. And the way of the people of Yerushalayim is to daven even for the people of Sodom. Maybe there are ten righteous people in the city. God, how could you do that? Because he comes from Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is the place of chesed and kindness and charity and righteousness. The people of Sodom would never have davened for the people of Sodom. Only the man of Yerushalayim would daven for the people of Sodom. Of Sodom. If Sodom is about divisiveness and every man for himself, how does David HaMalach describe Yerushalayim? Ir... It's actually Hebron, but it's also an extension of the philosophy of Yerushalayim. It is a city of unity. It's a city of oneness. It's a city of togetherness. And that's intrinsic in the name itself. The Medrash in next week's parsha tells us that the name of our eternal undivided capital is made up of two words I mentioned before. Yireh and Shalem. It is a city, Yireh, a vision of Shalem. It is a vision of peace and unity. So to divide Yerushalayim, to divide Yerushalayim in two, is to compromise the very fabric of Yerushalayim's existence, is to undermine the very essence of a city that has existed for thousands of years. So, I was going to say with all due respect, but he doesn't deserve any respect, the author of that New York Times article that suggests that historians have some real debate about the Jewish connection to the Temple Mount, I mean, that, that is as outrageous as the New York Times writing an article that historians debate whether the Holocaust happened. It is, it is no less outrageous and egregious and offensive. We have had a connection to that city since the creation of the world, certainly since the encounter in our Parsha of Avram and Malkitzedek. To suggest that we need to divide a city, that Jordan offered to, to take over watching the Temple Mount, that the UN is looking to vote to declare our precious Kotel a Muslim site. I don't know if you saw that. These, these suggestions, these despicable, disgusting, horrific suggestions literally seek to undermine the very essence of the city. Malkit Sedek, it is the city of Sedek, of righteousness, of justice. It's a city of unity. It is the city of peace. The only time in the last 2,000 years that the three major religions of the world have all been able to practice freely in Yerushalayim is under the Jewish sovereignty. It is a city of unity. It is a city of peace. It is Yireh Shalem, 
Yerushalayim. It has a vision for peace. It has a vision for, for a sense of, of unity. That's why in our Tanakh, Yerushalayim appears, or a reference to Yerushalayim, no less than 457 times. 457 times. Never in the Quran. It's not a holy site for the Muslims. But for the Jewish people, no less than 457 times. Yerushalayim encapsulates everything that we dream for our people. Righteousness, justice, peace. That's why we face it wherever we're davening in the world. That's why we end our Seder and we end Yom Kippur, Lashana Abba, Yerushalayim. That's why we daven for Yerushalayim every single day in our tefillos. Because that's what Yerushalayim is all about. It's the choice of Sodom or the choice of Yerushalayim. Avram chose Yerushalayim. And only a man of Yerushalayim would even praise, pray for the people of, of Sodom. Okay, let's see a little bit more in these, uh, in these psukim before we conclude. Malki Tzedek gives them a bracha. Malki Tzedek is described who Kohen le kelel yom. And he gives a bracha. Vayivarchei uvayamar pasuk yates 19. Baruch Avram le kelel yom konei shamayim va'aretz. What should it say? It should have said, blessing to Avram, who was blessed, may kel Elyon. Avram, may you be blessed. And Avram is described as the man who is, may, who is blessed from God. What do you mean, le kel Elyon? So the Rav, again in the Rav Chumash, says, Malkitzedek uses, blessed to God. This means Avram's blessing had to reflect back upon God. Malkitzedek's blessing was, that Avram would succeed in service of God in his great endeavor to establish a new society and give man a code by which to live and act. All the blessings bestowed upon Avram would be returned with dividends to God. Avram would proclaim that, God's own, that God owns the world and that man is only an instrument in the hands of God to carry out and realize his will. So when Malki Tzedek is giving a bracha to Avram, he gives a bracha to Avram, Baruch Avram, Likhel Elyon. It should have just said, Mekel. Says the Rav, Lekel Ayon, to God means the greatest bracha Malkitzedek could give God is that Avram is successful. As God's agent, as God's shliach, as God's ambassador here on earth to attract others to him, the bracha to God is that Avram be successful. It's a beautiful diuk, a beautiful insight over by Salavechik, not Mekel Ayon, but Lekel Ayon. He's described the Kliyaka rites in Pasuk Yates. Previously, Malki Tzedek is the Kohen Lekel Elyon. He is the priest of the one above. But now, he blesses Avram, Lekel Elyon, Kone Shamayim Va'aretz. This is similar to what the Rav just said, says the Kliyakar. Lamala Namar Vahu Kohen Lekel Elyon. Velo Hizkir Kone Shamayim Va'aretz. Before, he's described as the God above, but not as the God who fashioned, who owns heaven and earth. Why that addition? Says the Kliyakar, Only in the context of Avram does he go from being Kel Elyon to Kel Elyon You see, in the world of Malkit Tzedek, in the world of Shalem, he's hidden in the ivory tower of the base Medrash. He's keeping God to himself, as we said earlier from the Rambam. So therefore, God is Kelayon. He's studying the God who's all the way up there, the distant, ephemeral God. But Avram 
is operating down here on earth. Avram is going town to town, city to city, getting up on a soapbox and telling everybody, join me, join me in this new world movement, this new world religion. He brings God from the heavens down here to earth. So in the context of Avram, says the Kliyakar, he goes from being just Kelel Yon, the God of on high, to Kona Shemayim Va'aretz, the God who's down here on earth as well. I'll tell you one last thing. When, when uh, Maki Tzedek gives this bracha, he starts out and he first gives a bracha to Avram, Vayomer Baruch Avram, and then Ubaruch Kelayon Asher Migain Tzarecha Biyadecha. So, <coughs> our rabbis tell us that Maki Tzedek is punished. Shame is punished. Why? Because he first blesses Avram and only after does he acknowledge God. Look at the Orachayim. He was going to be the progenitor of the priesthood. He is Malki Tzedek. He was Kohen. Who Kohen? Lekeloyon. Why did he lose the Kahuna? Why were his children not the source of priesthood? He lost the priesthood as punishment for the fact that he said it in the reverse order. He should have first blessed God and only then blessed Avram. I'll tell you, it's very interesting. There are achronim who say, we have the practice when you make a l'chaim, that you take your glass and you make a l'chaim and then you make a bracha, shahako, and you drink your l'chaim, and you drink your l'chaim. The kafachaim and others say, it's a terrible mistake. You pour your glass, first you make the bracha, you take a sip, and then you make the l'chaim. How could you, just like, I don't know if they reference uh, Malki Tzedek, but how could you first bless each other, L'chaim, 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 and then only then give a bracha to Hashem? First you have to give the bracha to Hashem, and only then do you give the L'chaim to one another. That's we the should... That's the second drink. Oh, the second drink, okay. <laughs> we should be to Yerushalayim, being the Yerushalayim, the city of unity and peace, peace in Eretz Yisrael and around the world. Amen.